0: Welcome back to an episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Nell Shamrell-Harrington. I'm a senior staff engineer at Mozilla and one of your regular hosts and glad to be back. And with me are two of my other regular hosts. uh, Tyler, Tyler, how's it going today?
1: Hey, Nell, it's uh, going great. Uh, Thanks for asking. Lots of stuff to do and me busy.
0: Glad to hear. And -hmm. also we have uh, Jeff. Jeff, how, how, how are you?
2: I'm doing great yeah it's you know the weather's starting to pick up here in the Chicago area and it's nice kids getting outside so no complaints
0: glad to hear and we have a guest with us uh Henry Jukes how are you tell us a little bit about yourself
3: I'm doing great now thanks for having me on the show um yeah a little bit about myself uh I'm an engineer and an experimentation advisor with Split Software. Um, during that time, I've seen the difference of you know uh, running efficient release management for um, companies and how that impacts their software development teams' development velocity, helps them empower those teams to, to release more efficiently, and also can really increase morale by letting people understand the difference that they're making. Um, and I'm just looking for ways to, to help expand that and, and have more people you know drive and get to see that impact quickly. This episode is sponsored by Gravitational. As your team and cloud
4: infrastructure grows, you may want to reevaluate how you access SSH servers and Kubernetes clusters. Gravitational Teleport is an emerging open source replacement for OpenSSH, which was built for modern cloud workloads. Teleport is opinionated. It does not allow SSH keys, and instead it insists on certificate-based authentication, making it dead easy to set up and use. Teleport is fully compatible with your SSH and Kubernetes tooling, comes with a beautiful web UI and an audit log, and it allows users to access servers outside of data centers like IoT devices. It was called Teleport because it creates the illusion that all your company's servers are in the same room with you, even if some of them are self-driving vehicles. Download Teleport on gravitational.com slash teleport or find it on github.com slash gravitational
3: teleport.
0: Awesome. And I have to ask real quick, is that an Audio-Technica 2020 microphone you've got there?
3: Uh, This one's a a Shure, SM7, so yeah. All
0: right. Sorry for the little uh, little podcaster uh, tangent there. (laughs) Uh, Good. And you had an interesting topic for this uh, show, which is modern release management. There's a lot of areas we can go into, but that seems to be the overall topic. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, so you know, as um, DevOps has kind of you know proliferated and, and really become standard at most organizations, you know, we've seen that engineering teams are, are getting greater control and responsibility for the infrastructure that their code runs on. You know, uh, there's plenty of CI/CD technologies out there that really turn that you know yearly, quarterly release cycle into something that's happening weekly, nightly, and, and you know, for a lot of companies now, truly continuous delivery of their software. Um, and, that, and that combined with the movement to microservices means that the releases themselves are broken into narrower and narrower domains. Uh, yeah, so independent ownership, small teams can say what's being delivered, how it's delivered, when it's actually going out. But now the speed is no longer the blocker. The, the companies really need to look at, well, how do we release this fast? while still being safe. Um, And so looking at technologies and techniques that allow you to kind of get that safety net and and make sure that um, what you're releasing is coordinated across all of those different platforms um, and then also managed. Um, And safety doesn't just mean breaking things. You know, it's not just bugs, it's it's degrading performance, it's reducing value to customers. I mean, it's, it's even wasting time, you know, building things that don't make sense, that aren't moving the needle um and so you know for me uh, and and for the work that i've been doing lately uh you know the kind of comes in a couple of technological solutions and some, uh, you know, processes that people can implement. Um, in particular, talking about things like feature flags and phased rollouts. Um, and then also the process of, of measuring releases, you know, tying down all of the metrics that you're already measuring your company on measuring the success of your infrastructure on, uh, back to those releases so that you can understand what's happening.
0: Sounds great. Uh, what do you mean by a phased or a feature flagged release?
3: Sure. So many listeners have probably heard of or used Feature Flags. You know, it's a tool that separates code deployment from feature release. Um, you know, in, when it comes to the actual code, you know, it's just going to be a simple if-else statement. You check the feature flag, and that's going to return either a boolean. You know, it's on or it's off, um, or potentially you know something called a treatment or a variant. You know, oftentimes just a string that says, "Hey, you know, we're serving V1 or V2, or this will be red or blue, whatever kind of describes the the variation of the release." Um, So these can then be powered by a configuration, maybe a a small file that's deployed, um, but more often and and more effectively, you know, some service database or, or even an external tool or platform that's able to drive those feature flags. Um, so then once you have that ability to manipulate the code to say only run this code path if the feature flag is enabled, uh, you can then have those code paths represent you know, use something as simple as a bug fix or a refactor of the code or everything behind rendering a particular feature. And so then you can use that to specifically target your feature flags, you know, that code at, you know, your, whatever unit of targeting that you want. Most of the time that might be a particular user. You know, I'm going to turn this on for myself or for a set of beta customers. Um, but it can also be entire organizations if you're a business to business company. And then for you know more engineering focused workloads, you might be enabling something just for a particular session or transition. Transaction, you know, even a particular database request or a piece of um, you know, a, a data that's being processed through one of your back-end pipelines or machine learning, you might choose what model you're going to be using, um, using a, a feature flag so that you can target that data accordingly. Um, Those flags can be as simple as an on off, you know, okay, all the traffic will start seeing this new feature and if something goes wrong, we can turn it off. We have that kill switch available to us. Uh, But also they can be used to ramp to some random population. You can target very specifically based on some attributes everyone in the United States is going to get this feature. Um, And then you can also use that to target multiple variations at a time. So you you can maybe have uh, different models that you're trying to performance test against one another and you can use this to be able to gate those different variations. The advantage of this, you know, besides the obvious security that you have and knowing who's saying what and when, um, is also that you can get those partial releases uh, happening. Um, so that way, you know, if you ramp something on to 5% of your users, 20% of your users, rather than just, oh, it was deployed, now it's on for everyone, is that if there's a problem that happens, you really get to minimize the blast radius. Uh, and also, you can collect data to compare those with the feature. Uh, those without it so you can understand what's happening as part of that release
1: so getting more into like the nitty-gritty how-to of, of what you do with this is um, I was just pulling up split i/o and, and languages and SDK support and it was making me think of you know how are, how do people log into this and what kind of maturity do they need to have in their deployment um, you know yes a lot of places want to be agile and they're getting to that point um, but what it do they have to have certain um tools that they're using, like configuration management or uh release um management, these type of things? What 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 does a, a typical person look like that that wants to come on board with, with split and and use uh use this?
3: Yeah, so the advantage to working with um, flagged software, split in particular, um, is that you're in a position where really any code that's in production has the opportunity to leverage feature flags effectively. So you can go through that process of saying, you know, I, I'm, I've turned something on, and maybe I've only released this once. You can imagine you work on your your application, you know, maybe a mobile app that goes out there, and you you have a single release that goes out into the world. Maybe that's all you need, but to be able to configure functionality, you know, on a per user, per region basis, gives you that flexibility to say, okay, I'm only going to have this on for people that are paying me money, or part of my Patreon, or you know, uh, be able to get that level of configuration. Most software products are released more than once, which is great. And so, um, whether you're at a, a company that's looking to make the move to a more you know, CI/CD focused, you know, agile process, um, this is a great first step because it gives you that ability to know that, hey, even though we released all this code, you know, a bit faster, we maybe had less QA go through um, as part of that process, you can then um, have the confidence to know, well, if anyone complains about it, we can just turn that off and and you have that safety net. Um, The other thing is that, this is you know we we see companies that are already you know consistently releasing continuously that that have you know trunk-based development in place are very agile maybe have tons of dashboards and metrics that they're tracking but but might not be tying that data back to the releases themselves and this gives a lot of power to those organizations to really deeply understand what's happening um and being able to to slice things down um So that if you've got 100 releases that are are happening concurrently, you know, if you've got 10 different teams, 100 teams, 1,000 engineers that are building and releasing code, you have that level of control to know that when something breaks, you don't have to go through every single commit that just went out in that deployment to try to track down what happened or or the past days worth of deployments to to understand better. Um, So, yeah, it kind of works up and down the scale.
0: This is so much more sophisticated. My first experience with feature flags, I was working on a big Rails code base almost 10 years ago. And for our accounting people, we literally had hard-coded into the view, if username equals one of these three options, show them this text. If it doesn't, don't show them this text. (laughs) Uh, What you're describing sounds so much better.
3: Yeah, when we got started at Split, you know, early days, kind of having a feature flagging tool for people, we talked to a lot of companies where they're like, we're, we're already using feature flags. We have feature flags and it's in this JSON file that we have stored in S3 and, you know, Bob has the keys to go in and, and update it if we need to. Um, and then if you, you know, for, for us at Split, we're, we're a software as a service tool. We've built out a really beautiful, elegant um, in, interface. You can go to our website, and have someone you you could have a sales engineer or you know someone in your marketing team be responsible for launching your product you know this new feature is going out they get the email blast ready and you can certainly give them the power to turn this on for your customers or or a particular salesperson wants to give someone some some insight into like hey this new feature is coming out soon they could certainly be given that control you know if you wanted to enable those types of permissions for them Um, and so as a result you have this fine-tuned ability to really configure what's happening and really be able to interact with um, your customers in a much deeper way. Um, so it, it's really come leaps and bounds over over the past few years from what a lot of people have originally thought of as future flags.
2: Now, Henry, I'm, I'm curious though. Some of the use cases you've been talking about feel like they're more, um, you know, sort of... Um, is sort of a temporary use almost, right? You're ramping up or you want to do some testing. You want to, um, you know, sort of minimize the blast radius, right, as you said. But is there also the use case of, hey, we want certain, you know, there's certain groups like, you know, Nell's uh, example, certain groups to have um, access to a feature and they're the only ones who will have it so there would be more of a permanent use. Um, of the feature flags, is that common, or you know, are you know, is it really more about just hey, how do we how do we do release management in a CD world, um, in a more controlled and more rational way?
3: So something that I really enjoy exploring with companies is, is kind of what their particular use case is, and then being able to apply that uh, the the tools and technologies that we have to those use cases. So you know we have some customers that are entirely focused on you know, enablement. Uh, effectively, you know you might have a dozen different features and particular paywalls, and say, okay, everyone with this plan is going to have this access, and so you can create a list or, or even a, an attribute that's associated with that particular organization or a particular user and say, okay, if you have this attribute on, then turn this feature on. And then that way, that feature is going to, that flag around the feature is going to live in the code, you know, as long as that feature is available to customers. Uh, that gives you both the advantage of being able to have that control without needing some separate you know, content management system or enablement um, uh, technology, uh, but it also gives you the ability to understand, okay, let me slice and dice data based on who has what access and, and really see what's happening. Uh, another common case for longer-term feature flags or permanent feature flags is, is this idea of configuration. That you know maybe uh, we we have. You know, a model or a pipeline and most of the time we're able to scale the code just fine and it's it's maybe running with five threads at a time and you might want to then be able to in an emergency ramp your software up in the same way that you're able to ramp your infrastructure up to say let's run this with more threads or with a different configuration Um, or even you know let's give people one of the features that we have is this this configuration thing and you know we define what size the configurations can be for our customers based on a configuration. So if someone's complaining that, hey, you know, the there isn't enough space, I want to send a megabyte worth of data down for this particular use case. You can go in and tune that for that user, or for everyone to be able to add more data to that payload. Um, and something that's really come up very often, um, especially you know in the, the current climate, is that you might have messaging that you want to be able to put on your, your website, maybe when people land on your, your homepage. Uh, at Split, we have a banner that shows up if we enable the feature flag behind it. And then the content and the color of that feature flag are defined by the... Um, Are defined by that configuration. And so you're then able to go in and say, maybe there's a performance issue and you can make a red banner that says, hey, we're aware of a particular performance issue and we're, we're taking action. Um, in other cases, you might say that, you know, we have a special going on for everyone. Here's our messaging or orders might be slower given the current climate, like just so you know. And so that way you can respond without needing a code push, without needing to deploy anything, you can make those changes.
4: Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job That's devchat.tv slash job Cool.
2: And I'm curious, you know, from the security standpoint, I have a security background. And I'm curious if, if that's, you know, how that use case sort of plays out as well. So, for instance, let's say you've got a uh, security vulnerability is, is detected. Um, and so, rolling out a, a patch, is that Um, Is there a use case for doing that in a more more controlled manner of maybe testing it within certain groups, maybe, um, you know, rolling it out to customers who seem to be perhaps more exposed, uh, more susceptible to that being exploited? And therefore, hey, let's get it out to them. Let's test it. uh, See how it does. Uh, Does it kill performance or have some other, you know, negative impact? And then before we roll it out to the general community or, you know, know, maybe give us an example or two of, of how that sort of plays out.
3: Yeah, I can talk, especially this kind of two sides to that equation, right? You can be in a position of saying that, hey, this this is something maybe these set of customers have asked for, your classic beta testers case. They've opted in, they know they want it, we can turn it on for them quickly. Um, other cases, as you say, maybe there's some performance characteristics where we know that you know we should change this configuration or maybe release this fix for the, that group of people sooner because they are our heaviest users. Or uh, on the contrary, maybe they're our lightest users and we want to just make sure that it's working and and if it does affect them, they're unlikely to notice like that kind of perspective. Um, but something that you know, split does and then you know, if you're building your own feature flagging tool that we really recommend you do is have a way of recording that those exposures. We call them impressions, you know, who saw what and when. And that gives us the ability to go in and say, during this particular time period, um, you know, th- these users were exposed to the feature that they-, they saw it turned on. And so as a as a customer, um, or as someone building the the product that is configured by Split, maybe you, you release a code change and God forbid, it, it does have a major impact. It, it maybe causes a, a problem in the data that's being written to the database or opens a security loophole. Um, what you want to then do immediately is know who was affected, uh, and that's generally a really hard thing to do, especially when maybe that that impact is nestled further down into your website. And so we, you know, the feature flags are only going to be called when you're showing that feature, and so you're able to know that. Sure, maybe. A thousand, a million people came to my website during that two-hour stretch that the the code was enabled, but only, you know, these five or these thousand, however many customers were actually exposed to it. And so that can inform your remediation, your communication, how you're able to to address and and really directly work with and and give a, a much closer touch to the people because you know they're the ones that were affected by that.
0: Something I want to uh, kind of shift us to, because you, you, you kind of alluded to it. I watched one of your talks before the show, and, and you mentioned uh, the idea of measuring releases. And I was thinking, yeah, again, 10 years ago, uh, fairly junior programmer, my only way of measuring releases was, does it work or does it not? Or did it break something or did it not? And you couldn't always tell. Uh, how, how, how do you measure releases?
3: Sure. Yeah. So, so I've talked a lot about understanding how that release is impacting people. And, you know, everyone, I think, thinks of themselves as data driven. You know, everyone's got that big dashboard sitting on the wall in their engineering pod, um, flash red or green as issues come. Uh, honestly, most companies these days have dozens of them. You, know, you might have one for each domain and, and then a big one that shows the health of the system. Um, and it's a place where, you know, you can watch, you can generate reports. Um, maybe, you know, if you're making a particular change, you can go and look, okay, we're, we're rolling out um, an update to our pipeline, let's look at the pipeline metrics. Uh, but A, rarely is a release ever contained to a single domain, you know, if you, you make a change that, that can impact customers in a myriad of different ways, um, you know, you... You might push a, a change to one part of your system that shouldn't impact the customer at all, but maybe that's slower and the lower page load time has a really big impact on you know your business metrics you never would have thought of looking at. Um, But so what you want to be able to do is, you know, we call it attribution, taking that data that I was describing, but that says who saw what and when that, Hey, I was exposed to this particular feature and then taking the data that you're already collecting in terms of performance or product usage, even sales and marketing data can be combined all together to give you that insight into uh, what's really happening um, for the people that were exposed to the feature. Um, and so, in that way, you can say, okay, here's the population of customers that, that had the feature on, here's the population that had it off, um, and then to use that data to uh, actually generate the metric in each case, and with that metric data, um, perform a comparison between the two. Um, yeah, I, I recently read one of those articles that lists off the the superpowers of the mythical 10x engineer. You know, one uh, one of those was that they know every single line of code that's going into production. Um, and you know, if something goes wrong, they have that mental model to know what's causing it, and that's what makes them a great engineer. And you know, maybe maybe for a small product a project or a small service, that there might be engineers that, that do know what's going on there, but for any sufficiently large platform, uh, if one person can wrap their head around all of the implications of every change that your team is delivering, you, you probably aren't delivering enough, you know? Um, and so being able to use these technologies and, and use math to actually collect that data, to analyze that data, the, you know, that way every single person has that superpower. They can go to the dashboard and look at that comparison. Um, and, you know, for us, we look at the techniques that are applied often by marketing teams as optimization experiments as A-B tests. Um, they're they also relevant for all releases. You know, you might not be saying whether red is better than blue. You might just be saying, do people like this feature? Or does the the system work with this feature enabled? Um, and, you know, we've found, we've worked with a, a ton of companies and, and seen that, uh, most releases honestly have little to no impact. You know, if you think of the the features of your product that really drive your business and change your business dramatically, you might be releasing a thousand times a week, but also probably only dramatically changing your business, you know, luckily a few times a quarter, if, you know, if if you're really successful. Um, and so being able to check that, you know, that they're not having a negative impact, that things are are working okay. It's, it's also incredibly powerful. And, and that's where you know, being able to look at the data and then be able to really separate the signal from the noise. Um, the, the, that's where you can get a lot of power um, and, and making that available across the organization is, is critical. So
1: I, um, my, my brain has been getting really technical level. And I think we've gone over a lot of high detail stuff. So I hope you don't mind if I want to try to dig into a little bit of the technical and just trying to answer some of my questions. Um, and what I mean by that is that uh, as I was looking over the uh, SDK on the docs and and understanding it, it looks like it essentially it's like a middleware that uh, will get included like as a library. You know, so if I have a Rails app, I add this as a, a gem and and configure my Rails app to to be able to connect to the the API. So what I'm envisioning there is that you know you're sending or telegraphing some information back to to the, the, you know, home base out, out and split. But um, let's say, you know, do you guys, how do you guys handle if my, the questions that popped into my head are like, how do you guys handle things if your system for, you know, for whatever reason has, has to go down, does it fail gracefully? Does it just skip over split? And then not only is that, but uh, you know, do you have different options for being able to run it maybe more on prem versus uh, software as a service out on the cloud?
3: Yeah, that's a great question because obviously the nature of release management software is that this is software that goes into your production code and that uh, requires a huge amount of trust to be able to do. Um, so our approach you know, from the very beginning uh, was that you know, at no point should split ever negatively impact your system. It shouldn't impact your performance. It should never bring your site down. Uh, you know, you need to be in a position where where there's kind of unwavering quality. Uh, actually, the the first engineer that split hired was a quality engineer, um, even before we had a larger technical team. So our approach to being able to accomplish that has a few different components. Um, First and foremost is that our clients themselves, um, they they come in one of two different models. Um, So each, each client has the ability to either Um, be a fat client living within the system that basically pulls down all of the rules um, that you've defined inside of the split ui and then processes all of them on the spot in that place Um, as a result you know it takes nanoseconds less than a millisecond to be able to to process uh you know any particular treatment or, or set of treatments for a given user um, and so that gives you that that efficiency, and it also means that we're able to cache those rules, have all of that performance um, down in the system uh, so that you can say let's say you're you're an i o s application and you you know you might not have access to the internet most of the time, and so what you're able to do is kind of preload you know what that data is, and whenever it talks to split it'll pull down the latest set of definitions, and that set of definitions will be there cached, ready to use whenever that system loads up. And so you're then in a position where each time the, the a system you know, is able to call back, it can update, it can get the latest code or the latest definitions, but you know that whenever it loads, you're going to get a consistent experience, Split will never be an issue. Um, additionally, if you were in a position where you're you're called the SDK for something that maybe doesn't even exist or, or you you kind of code it wrong or, or something like that, uh, the split won't ever throw an exception. You know, we'll, we'll add things to the logs uh, and you can configure out the logging information. And then we return uh, a control treatment that basically is just a string that says, hey, like just so you know, there's an issue going on here. Let's default to your off behavior. And so whatever happens when that feature isn't enabled, that, that's just a nice, safe place to be. Um, I talked about two different methodologies though. Um, so you know for some customers, maybe they have a ton of data that's going through or maybe even they have attributes that are in place that you know that you want to be able to roll out by, but that aren't available in um, you know, your, your client. You aren't going to have that data on the web browser. Uh, and so we have kind of prepackaged a deployable um, evaluator service that you can just add to your microservice uh, infrastructure. And then all of the SDKs can just call into that, it'll expose endpoints that can run and and generate that data. Uh, It's not truly on-prem just because we do have the the split cloud component, which is where you do your configurations, but it gives you that centralized service that you can manage, you can scale, you can tie that data, use Redis as a storage option, kind of build all of that out to give you a really consistent central point in your infrastructure that's talking to split. And then everything else is able to really quickly call back to that particular service and, and get that data as efficiently as possible excellent thank you i appreciate that
0: awesome uh, so i'm wondering i i also noticed in your talk you talked about the anatomy of a release platform and house has you know a targeting system a tracking sensors a statistical engine and a management console uh, do you mind taking us through that a little bit as a yeah, bit of a of mouthful course. isn't it <laughs>
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah a lot, a lot of a lot of big pieces there but in in particular there each one of those items is, is you know very straightforward and probably something that companies already have in place today um so first and foremost you know it was that idea of, of your you know, targeting system that's those are the feature flags um to be at a point where you can go in and say um you know, target this person or ramp this on for 50% of users, kind of manage how those rollouts are going to be designed. Um, That, you know, there's plenty of tools, open source libraries, split and you know I'm sure many companies have have created this internally so you probably have some way of managing features it doesn't need to be as robust as split has with all its targeting capabilities just something that puts you in a position of being able to say you know some percentage of your user base is going to receive this um, with regards to that you know getting a little bit technical here but that randomization process being able to consistently say that 50 percent of users are going to get the on treatment we do that just by taking whatever that user id is session id is and we hash it and so that just gives us a number on the number line that's uniformly distributed and then we just say which portion of the number line it maps to you know if it's in the first half of our hashing range then we're able to say that's in that 50 percent. Um, and so it's a really straightforward way. It's something that you know, at its most basic level, people can write in just a few lines of code to be able to create that targeting system. But making sure that that's then reporting back that data. Whenever a targeting call gets made, it's able to say, you know, you know, uh, Nell saw the on treatment at two o'clock.
4: Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about, so come check us out at
3: ifreakshow.com. From there, um, we you know want to tie that data to your telemetry. So telemetry is just a fancy name for for your events information, your um, you know your metrics data, uh, and so being able to find whatever data you have in your system, you know the the metrics that you're recording in terms of your performance or your product utilization, and tie it back to that identifier. You know use that same user. Um, so once. You know, now had received the the on treatment. Uh, you were then in a position that where you maybe made a purchase, or maybe your page loads took twenty milliseconds, or you know, um, maybe you signed up for a, a free trial. Um, and so, from that information, you can then, on a per user basis, be able to generate metric values. Um, and so, you know, we we want some kind of way to. Um, Actually, look at this data and combine this data together. Um, we talk about this as a separate system, the statistical engine, but in practice, you know, a lot of people probably have a data warehouse, their BI system, some some place where you're able to combine this data, um, and. That gives you the ability to say, okay, let me take all of the events that happened you know, for this particular user after their exposure, and now I know that I can attribute those events to that session in which they were exposed or you know, to that life cycle, um, and the time that that experiment was running and that feature was being released. Once you have that data, we are strong supporters of using statistics as part of this. Um, you know, not just being able to say, okay, this is the the average number you know, sales price or the average page load time across the board, but to be in a place where you're able to look at the data um, on a per user basis, because you know, someone that's based in Seattle, someone based in Colorado, and someone based in China might all have very different page load times when they hit your website and just, you know, if you're in a position where you happen to turn something on for more people in the u.s than in china then you get into a place where you know there's a lot of signal to noise that you need to be able to look through um fortunately this is something that you know uh, that researchers have been dealing with for centuries you know being able to collect a data set and then be able to determine you know what the differences between the people that received the treatment or didn't you know is core to how we've done medical research it's our randomized controlled trial um and so what that is able to do is you look at the behavior for each user you know which how many users in one group converted how many users in the other group converted and then you can compare those two different data sets and say, oh, is the difference that we're seeing you know, actually something that's meaningful? Is it something that's like really linked to that? And by tying those distributions back to who saw the features, you can actually draw some causal inferences rather than just correlating that, oh, the, the page loads went up around the same time that we turned the feature on and so all of that comes together in a in a form where you can really draw meaningful conclusions you can say you know, as a result of turning on this feature our, our page load performance uh, improved by you know, somewhere between eight and twelve percent um, and that also you know helps when you turn that on for you know a small fraction of your population if you only turn it on for 5% of your users, you can then use that still to extrapolate what that would look like for your business when you ramp that up across the entire user base. Um, and that brings me to kind of that last piece. I, you know, I, I One of the things that I learned early on in my career is that all of the data in the world um, doesn't really mean much if you can't present it well and oftentimes the stakeholders for whether a feature is successful aren't the people that built the feature aren't the engineers kind of rolling that out you know it's going to be people on the product team or the the leadership on the engineering team or you know stakeholders of your company um and so having some kind of view that that management console that website that you're able to go to and just make all this easy to to turn it on from zero percent to ten percent to fifty percent without needing to update an s3 bucket or change a record in the database um, and then being able to see those results, to be able to look at all of your different metrics and, and understand what's happening. Um, that, that gives you that great visual uh, uh, approach to the data that some CSV is never really going to give you.
0: Awesome. Uh, something else I want to make sure we touch on before we get to picks. Uh So I was looking through your website and I saw a blog post from 2017. And it was about engineering burnout and how CI can help. Uh, burnout is something I have a lot of experience with. I think all engineers, when you get to a certain level, uh, experience that. And what made me think of it was earlier in the episode, you talked about the myth of the 10 time develop, 10, 10x developer who can keep all the, the entire system in their head, essentially. And I've worked at a couple of places. This was a long time ago, but that was sort of possible. But the people who did have the whole thing in their head were very miserable people uh, because they were the ones being called the Brents if we if we bring the the, the name from the Phoenix project in um, can you talk a little bit more about that
3: yeah I'm, I'm glad you bring it up too because this is something that I actually just kind of took that blog post and updated it recently um, because uh, especially now with everyone's working environment kind of thrown out the window, you know, people working from home with, with kids running around, um, you know, burnout's become a real part of a lot of people's lives. Um, so I've done some research into burnout. Uh, Gallup did an incredible survey and paper on the subject. Um, and, you know, people are familiar with kind of that core ideas behind burnout, you know, that, that it's high stress, it's working long hours. It's kind of always on, but, I think also people can think of times where they've they've worked all night they've stayed up late they've worked weekends, and just been excited about the project and been like really invigorated to work um, burnout more specifically kind of comes from that slog you know that that endless march where you don't necessarily see the end in sight, you like you're pushing really hard, but you still feel like you're behind um, and so that's something that. You know, it's clearly part of the process. Like, like it's an indicator that you know maybe goals weren't set appropriately, or, or there's in you know a clear place. Uh, we actually, you know, I was recently finishing a project that, you know, about two weeks before release, we were in a position where, where a lot of, you know, new ideas came about from an architectural standpoint. And we, we said, okay, let, let's go and take this feedback in. And we kind of pushed out the deadline by about, you know, a month to six weeks. Um, and for the, the first, Two weeks of that, um, we we hadn't gone through that process of saying when are we, what's our new release date, where are we trying to go, and so you wind up in a position where each day you're like, okay, now we're three days late, we're five days late, we're two weeks late, and it, it kind of carries forward um, from there the things that you can do to address that are to go through the process of saying, well, well, what are our goals? Like, what are we trying to deliver? Why are we trying to deliver that? Get everyone to understand the value that they're delivering. The second is to be in a position to improve the, the pace at which you're able to achieve that, those goals, Um, to be in a position where as you see you know your your code um being worked on you know you know you want to be able to move the needle and engagement or to to perform a refactor get a feature out you know everyone talks about those mvps to to break things down to the smallest components you know to work agile and and i really believe that you know the agile principles are something that can really help alleviate that stress and burnout that that continuous integration gives, puts you in a position where you can say, okay, my goal for this week is to get this part of the deliverable out. It may not even be in front of customers, but you know it's done, you know it's in production, it might be behind a feature flag, and you've, you've accomplished something and you can feel excited about that and you can move on to the next. And then that that component of measurement that I've been talking about gives you the ability to bring everything back and see, you know, meaningfully, measurably, that oh, hey, we made this change and it had this difference. Um, And so those different pieces, bringing that all together can really help alleviate the stresses of, of kind of day to day kind of remove that, that marathon that, that people can sometimes feel like they're on and give people, you know, the break and reward that's needed, that, that mental health day um, that, that might be needed as part of that process. Um, while not feeling like you're, you're walking away from a project, you know, when when you're still behind.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Uh, anything else anybody wants to bring up before we move on to PICS?
1: I think my pen got burned out recently because pen got I had, burned out. yeah, I just barely bought it like three days ago. I come to start writing things down this morning and dry as a bone. Like I just, I just started using you three days ago. I did take a lot of notes over those days, mm-hmm. but I just, I just was weird that it already burned out. I had to go to the next one. And I don't know. I saw this really interesting thing in a random virtual pick. People were taking, um, whiteboard or markers, and they would hook up, hook them up to a little string and use centrifugal centri- centri- force to to get the ink to kind of go back oh. towards the, the beginning. So I'm going to try that on this randomly on my pen, and maybe I'll let you guys know if that works. Because I just barely bought it. It's like a $3 pen, you know? It's just oh, really cool pens that you can erase with and stuff, and it's just like, seriously... Uh, 2020 sucks is what i'm saying
0: all right well definitely let us know uh how how that goes and whether you're able to restore your pen through centrifugal force
1: all right will do All
0: all right well let's go ahead and move on to picks uh i have two today uh the first is i don't think anyone can escape that We've had a lot of demonstrations, we've had a lot of protests recently, and there's generations and generations of deep pain that's being expressed uh, through those, that's coming to the forefront. So a podcast I found that helped me understand that much better than I did, uh, it's called Code Switch. It's uh, through NPR, and it does this brilliant, both historical analysis of issues that we're seeing today, and also personal stories. And I found I understand something so much better when I connect with someone's personal story involving it. So if you're looking to gain a greater understanding of that pain that's being expressed, definitely recommend that one. Other one, uh, this has been a little bit of my escape recently, but a couple of episodes ago, I picked Star Trek Picard uh, for my uh, pick, which I still love. Uh, But that got me to buy CBS Access. And I've been going through Star Trek Discovery. Uh the first season is a li- little out there I'm not still not quite sure what they did with the klingons there but the second season it, it was still enjoyable and the second season is really really good. So highly recommend that if you're looking for sci-fi with some morality lessons and inspiration definitely recommend Star Trek Discovery. And with that Tyler over to you.
1: Yeah great. Um so this week I started a trial on uh Blinkist, which Blinkist is essentially they they turn books that are out there into a condensed audio format. So you can get the highest level stuff more rapidly. And, and I think that's good for me It's had a never ending chain of books that I'd like to read, but I still have time to. Um, so I'm giving that a try. Uh, and then as far as just relaxation goes, there's nothing like a good shotgun and some bad guys and zombies to blow away. Um, so Nintendo just had a, a recent, a lot of games are getting ported to my, my favorite system, which is the Nintendo switch. And, uh, so it's, it's more mature. It's definitely rated uh, 17. Um, but, uh, sometimes it's, it's fun to collect zombie brains and, and do those type of things. It's called, uh, And I still haven't even mentioned what it is Borderlands uh, Legendary Collection. It's three different games uh, in one collection for for Borderlands. Um, And that's my other pick.
0: All right, Jeff, over to you.
2: All right. So, you know, just talking about engineer burnout, um, I think that's something that we all sort of feel. And and, uh, a book that I read, um, keep it on my bookshelf, um, is by Twyla Tharp. it's, uh, what's it called? The creative habit. I had to look back over the book and see what it was. Um, she's like a, I think she's a, a dancer and a dance, um, choreographer, that sort of thing. Um, so that's not anything I can really relate to personally, but, um, just the exercises, the things that she does to sort of get herself back into the creative mode of just like, okay, how do I get into something i knew i have a big project got to start working on it and i am totally blanking i'm totally like blocked what do i do um and it's a great book it's she has very specific exercises to do at the end of each chapter that sort of cover what she does and things that she does and it's so applicable to everything and i think and to anybody so um it's, uh, yeah, it's a great pick, and I just thought it was timely when we talked about, you know, burnout, and, you know, especially where a lot of us are today, where we sort of, you know, sometimes just feel like, man, I just have no energy, and, you know, this is just crazy, cr- craziness around me.
0: Excellent. Henry, what about you?
3: Yeah, I actually have two picks today. Um, so, first, my wife and I are expecting our first child in early July, uh, so I'm preparing to be a new dad. Congratulations.
0: Um, That's coming you. soon.
3: Yeah. (laughs) So, um, we got a bunch of baby books, but I've always been more of like an auditory learner. Um, so I've had a bit of trouble making it through them uh, a bit of slow goings, but I discovered a small YouTube channel recently called dad university. Um, and they take a very practical and focused approach to parenting advice. You know, it's, it's a YouTube video, so it's five to eight minutes and very fixed, uh, topic. And what's been really helpful there is it's just to kind of get other people's opinions and mindset. And obviously, you know, I don't have even the, the child isn't here yet, and it'll be a long time before, um, you know, some of the lessons will be applicable. But, you know, it, it helps me kind of gain a bit more of that confidence and, and really gives a form to see other people's views and, and how people are thinking about the topics and get me a bit more comfortable with, with the next big adventure that's coming. Um, And then technology wise, uh, I've been playing with a a platform called Dark lately. Um, It's an environment for building serverless backends, um, currently in private beta. And so I've had a chat uh, a side project that I've been working on for for some time. It's a chat bot, um, and what's been really nice transitioning it over to Dark is that it really enables the rapid prototyping process. You know, they make it really easy to, to not worry about the infrastructure to just go in, build the relevant endpoints, build the API collect uh, the, the database collections that are needed, um, and they also have already built out kind of integrations for a lot of other platforms. Um, so it's really well suited for. For my current use case for what I'm building now. Um, and then I'm excited to kind of see where it goes uh, in the future.
0: Awesome. Well, we're excited to see where it goes in the future too. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Henry. I really learned a lot this episode and really appreciate you taking the time to come on.
3: No, thank you all. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. Pleasure to meet you. Yep. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you to our listeners for listening. And we will be back next week. And until then, uh, and after then, please take care, everyone.
4: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit dot com to learn more.